Buckingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Talking about the Cookham Festival. And it's Cocktail Hour in Books. Hello, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages. And we, today we have Julian in the studio with me. Good morning, Julian. Hello, hello. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. So coming up in the show, we have got a packed show this morning. We'll be introducing you to a new colleague, Jeanette Kemp, who will be a new regular voice on Turning Pages. And so she's going to join us today and discussing the books uh, from her book clubs and some other topics. And in addition to Jeanette, we're also going to be chatting to Chantelle from the Little Bookshop in Cookham about um, the Lit Fest that she's organising at Nord Farm in April. Yes, it's festival time. So we've also got the programme for the Cookham Festival, which is happening in May. Um, It's just been launched and tickets are now available for the many talks and sessions that will take place. So we'll be letting you know later on how to get your tickets and what's in store for us all. And surprise, surprise, I know it's only 11 o'clock, but it's cocktail hour this week. And so we'll be shaking it all about with a great collection of books featuring cocktails. And as usual, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Indeed we have, but just before that, don't forget, this is my weekly plea. We really do want to hear from you. So you can contact me on Julian at Riverdog Radio with any tidbits of news, any books that you're reading at the moment. And we'd really like to share your ideas and recommendations shows. Great. So let's start with a quick roundup of book stories that have been in the news recently. So Julian, do you remember the BBC adaption of Pride and Prejudice? And Mr Darcy, Colin Firth in the lake scene. Um, And um, you've got um, Mr Darcy's white shirt. Yes. Worn by Colin Firth. And that is now the centrepiece of an exhibition opening at Jane Austen's house in Chaunton in Hampshire. It, it must surely be one of the most famous scenes in TV history. And when Mr Darcy emerges dripping from a lake to bump into Jennifer Earle's Elizabeth Bennet, a significant turning point in their relationship. So Jane Austen Undressed focuses largely on the undergarments that Austen heroines would have worn under their Regency dresses. But one of the main draws is going to bound to be the Colin Firth shirt. So disappointingly, the famous scene was actually fabricated by the show's adapter, Andrew Davis, and doesn't appear in the novel. But the scene does work well and it converted a swathe of teenage girls to the joys of Jane Austen. So on a more literary note, um, shedding Darcy of his formal layers, his seriousness and his self-importance. So if it gets somebody 
interested in uh, in Jane Austen, then that's worth it. Oh yes, I believe so. And I think it was uh, it was one of my favourite adaptations. It was fantastic, and I think we we should be inclusive, of course. But probably that scene might have inspired a lot of teenage boys to take up reading oh, yes, Jane Austen as absolutely. well. Absolutely. So don't forget the boys. <laughs> so the Jane Austen Undressed exhibition runs in Chawton House until the second of October. And uh, yeah, and I think it'd be well worth going to see. It'd be fantastic because I mean, certainly the the costumes on display in that program were superb, and that'd be wonderful. Yes, yeah. Now I found this little tidbit here, which uh, about a recent story. And I think this is really very interesting. Um, a recent story, a study has uh, have proven that information gleaned by googling uh, on computers and smartphones for any piece of information, even if it's searching for a word in a dictionary, is forgotten compared with facts read in a book. Now the research has shown that because we can find information so readily and so easily on computers that the human brain doesn't feel it is important enough to remember. But we often can recall how we search for the information, which is also key. Now, the study was conducted by the boffins at Cologne University, analysing three separate studies. And it seems that our brains value information only if it is hard-earned, such as by uh, studying long hours or from reading. Now, finding information quickly on your smartphone leads to reduced attention and diminished recall. And interestingly, if an individual has a high working memory, uh, that they are more likely not to bother to recall that information. Ah, so when we forget something, it's because we actually have a high working memory. Yes, and it's not you getting a bit doolally right. in your old age. So that's a comfort to us all. So... Great thumbs up for using our libraries and going to bookshops to buy books and read instead of going straight to the internet to search information. And I think it's really true because I remember as a boy, you know, I'd, I'd go to my father and say, oh, Dad, what does this word mean? Ah, right, he said, let's get the dictionary, which I used to groan because yes. I just wanted him, him to, to tell, tell the word. Yeah. And he'd get the dictionary down and he'd find the word and we'd go, then we'd go either side of that word and find another one and so on and so on. And it really is important. Go to the real source. Yeah. Yes, yes. So interestingly, through COVID, I've been doing a lot of studying. And of course, the libraries have been closed. So you've had to be looking at the books online. Yes. Yeah, well, that's true. Yes, yes. But I can assure you it was hours and hours of study online. So hopefully, hopefully it's gone in there somewhere. It'll, yes, it'll be locked away somewhere in the cabinet in your mind. Yes, let's hope so. Let's hope I can access it, find the key. So I was Sad to see that in the newspaper, Vera Gissing uh, has sadly died at the age of 93. And uh, she is the marvellous author of Pearls of Childhood. And she was one of the hundreds of children who was brought to Britain from under the noses of the Nazis during World War II by local man Nicholas Witten. So um, I don't know if you've ever been to Maidenhead Station well, I have passed through it, yes. But on Platform 3, there's this fabulous statue of Nicholas Witten um, reading a book. He's sitting on a bench and reading a book. And I've got to say, I always say hello to him when I, when I, when I pass, when I'm on that station. So he was dubbed the, um, the British Schindler by the British, uh, British press. Because he organised the kinder transport, which brought 669 Czech children who were at risk from oppression by Nazi Germany to England in 1939. Now, to put that in perspective, there were 15,000 Czech Jewish children who were sent to concentration camp and only 100 survived. 
So there was 669 Czech um, Jewish children. Uh, you know, that's a really significant mm. number. It is. Um, so Vera Gissing was one of these children that he saved. And when she left, her parents gave her her leather-bound diary, asking her to write down anything that she thought they would like to know so that after the war, they could sit down together and read it um, oh. over the table. So over the next six years, she filled 15 books. And Pearls of Childhood is based on these diaries. And she also wrote a biography of, of Nicholas Winton called... Uh, Nicholas Winton and the Rescued Generation. That's really fantastic. Um, the novelist Colm Toybin um, has won the 30,000 Rathbone Folio Prize for The Magician, a fictionalised biography of the writer Thomas Mann, just in time for its publication in paperback. Uh, the book follows the life of the German um, novelist and Nobel Prize winner, whose work includes, of course, we know uh, the most famous Death in Venice and The Magic Mountain. And it's against the backdrop of Europe's turmoil in the first half of the 20th century. Now, a statement from the judges said, after reading um, 80 books during the judging process, Tobin's novel made them fall in love with reading all over again. That shows you how good it is, actually. Yeah, really. I mean, if, if all the judges came to that conclusion. Yes. Now, the Rathbone Folio Prize was set up in 2011, um, in 2011 after the Man Booker Prize of that year, because the Man Booker Prize judges uh, attracted controversy by praising books with readability that zip along. Now, the new prize aims to bring literary gems to a wider uh, public presence as possible. So that sounds great. Yes, it does. Yeah, that's really good. A worthy prize. Yeah. So this week, we want to introduce you to a new colleague who will be joining Julian and myself on Turning Pages every so often. Her name is Jeanette Kemp and she's based in Windsor. And before she officially starts, I just wanted to get to know her slightly better and how she got involved in books originally. So let's listen to our conversation. Well, books have always been there, actually. They've been an absolute passion right from the days of my dad reading Paddington to me. And then that has always continued. And I feel quite proud of that, actually. I know people do dip in and out of books, but it's always been something that's kept me going, that's been there through the good and the bad times. And as I've got older, I was um, lucky enough to fall into a job working for the RBWM Library Service, which I was there for 12 years. And that really opened the doors for me because up until that point... I was reading in my comfort zone. Yes, I was just reading all the lovely books that I love. However, when you work for a library service, whether you're trying to encourage children to read or trying to infuse adults or people that maybe you want to try to come back to books, you have to read outside your comfort zone. You know, you might have to read a particular book that you wouldn't normally go. And actually, in the beginning, I was rather hesitant. If somebody produced a book and I thought, oh, I wouldn't really normally read that type of book. However, I embraced it. And that, for me, opened up just a whole new world of books. So through that, I've met so many lovely people and done so many exciting things. I was involved with the Maidenhead Festival this year, just finished. I was involved with them doing a few sessions on how to encourage your child to read. It can be a bit scary sometimes that... Maybe you're not a reader yourself, or even if you are, all of a sudden you've got this toddler sitting on your lap wanting a book read out loud. We're going to talk about that later and at a yeah. different session, aren't we? Because I, I know that's a really interesting area that, mm, that you've been definitely. doing. So that's certainly something I will, we will pick up on. So do you think you don't have a comfort zone now? So you're up for reading anything? I do. I do still have a comfort zone because I think people still do have their favourites. Do you want to know what type of books they are? Go so on my, then. 
My comfort zone is I love authors who are maybe born in Africa, Sri Lanka, India, some really lovely, interesting country with beautiful cultures. And they're born there. That's all their heritage is. But they're in America or they're in England and they come here and they're writing here. And they write with so much warmth because they write with warmth and love about their home countries. And then the contrast often, the contrast of being in the UK or, or maybe some displacement or some sort of reinventing themselves in, in another country. I love those sort of books because one, I really like finding out about how other people live. It's all very well reading a book set in the 2000s uh, in England. That's great. There's lovely, lo- lovely books about that. But I know what people do here. I know how we go to work and what our values are and how it works. But somewhere, I don't know, in a little village in the middle of India, you know, how their communities work and what's important to them and what makes them tick. I find that fascinating. And then you've got mm. a nice story woven through it. And I think that also... I always said at school I didn't like history and I still say I don't like history but actually I do because I learn my history through books and I find that fascinating I think oh did that happen there oh gosh crikey what happened to these people and so I think fiction is a brilliant way of learning about maybe different places in time and space that that you perhaps didn't know or hadn't felt and and the experience of of the people. Jeanette I understand you run a book club tell me a little bit about that. So my book group, I'm going to show off about it because I'm so proud of it. We are 12 years old, which I think is pretty good. More or less the same group, 10 of us. The reason we're so successful is we weren't a bunch of mums or a bunch of office people or a bunch of swimmers. We weren't a bunch before. I gradually handpicked people. I wanted people who really did read, people who take it with them in the car when they're waking to pick up their daughter because they might be 10 minutes and always put it in their bag if they're going to the doctors because the appointment might be late. There's those people and I wanted those people to chat with. And we meet about once every seven or eight weeks because every four weeks people are busy. Sometimes it's hard to read that particular book that maybe you didn't choose. And we take in turns to choose and we hold up three books and we vote. So there's a little bit of responsibility then. You're not just holding up one book that everyone's thinking, oh, dreadful, she wants us to read that. As I said, I quite like reading outside my comfort zone. And actually, I've found in all of those years, oh, half a dozen books that I thought, oh, really didn't like that. Mostly I've read them and sometimes walked away thinking this is a bit scary the book's a bit big or it's not for me but it's it's just incredible if you just open your mind to it and 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 read when we meet we do talk about the books and then we bring other stuff we've read and that's the part that i like and i know we've discussed it heather it's great isn't it what have you been reading what have you picked up might be something that's been sitting on the shelf for ages something beside my bedside something you heard about on the radio it doesn't have to be the latest new bestseller and that's the really exciting thing. Yeah, we talk a lot about that. And people come back to books and people talk about, oh, yeah, I was reading this the other day. And somebody will say, oh, I haven't read that for years. And a lot of people reread and or we're reading a book and it reminds you of another one. And that leads you to another author. So it's great. I'd recommend it to absolutely anybody. I want to join the book club. Absolutely. I, I have to say, it's one of the best things that I've done. It doesn't have to be highbrow and it doesn't have to be anything in particular. I think it's great the discussion you can hate it i can love it so what we can talk about and sometimes i come away from something and think do you know what really didn't think of look at the book from that point of view or i really didn't think about that it really makes you widen your mind yes. it's great for what you like and what you don't like so, so do you think that's your reading tip to join a book club 
I do, because I do know that a lot of people, I know I have friends that say, I don't want to join it because I don't want to be told what to read. Okay, so there is that to it. I guess the fact that we vote and we have three, we all feel we've got some ownership to it. Nine times out of ten, it's opened up another author to you. Or you might have a discussion about, oh, did you see that on television? The conversations lead you so that when you walk into a bookshop, You're not just looking at those bestsellers thinking, oh, who should I go for now? And that's the point of turning pages, actually, to allow people to realise that there are so many books out there. How do you find out about them unless someone enthuses about it? Definitely. And I think that's the other kind of magic about books, I think, is that it is all about the jungle drums and the spoken word. I think something can turn into an absolute bestseller through talking and communicating. It doesn't have to be from the publisher. It can just be how it hits the library shelves. Libraries are another really good, vibrant way of discussions. Uh, just talking to somebody, you know, what you, you know, whenever I go around to somebody's house, I always have a nice look at their bookcase. I always find that quite interesting. <laughs> okay, let's have a look at your bookcase. So you've picked a few books to share with us today, just as a sort I of like a, an introduction of a few of your yeah. favourite books, the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to make a bold statement here. I've got a whole pile of Ishigurus, so that means British author. So of course, and Clara, make, Clara and the Sun. Clara and the Sun, of course, which was his one. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to make a big statement. I think he is the best, most talented, currently writing British author. I think he's absolutely amazing. I'm holding up this one, Remains of the Day. Uh, I think this is the best of him, in my opinion. I think it really is. I think the way he writes about things, he writes about regret. I would put that stamp across a lot of his books. I mean, the relationship set in a beautiful time between the world war, these beautiful old houses and the butler and the way that people were so courteous to each other and the way that it was. And in a time, there was a relationship that didn't ever happen, of course, in, in this book. And just the regret and you so want these two people to get together. And it's, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It, it writes in a quite, quite sadly, really, pale, pale view of the hills. This was his first book, actually. And this is set in Japan after the um, Hiroshima bomb. And again, just observation. I think it's incredibly good human observation and relationships and customs. I just think he's, he, he writes beautifully. I get It's kind of a nice feeling of peace when you read his book. It's also quite challenging in terms of making you see the world in a slightly different way. Absolutely. And this, here's a typical one. This one, The Artist of the Floating World. So this is at the end of the Second World War, set in Japan. So, of course, Japan then had an absolutely dreadful time because after all, whatever they'd done in the Second World War, the the whole place was in ruins. There was no money. They were looking out for war criminals, all the things that had gone on in the camps. Really, again, really beautiful because it it, it talks about the artists and the art that was left there and and the beautiful floating candles in this lovely village, but also just the against the backdrop of just anguish and memories and how can this nation rebuild itself from what happened. Yeah, so I I think he's absolutely one to read. I mean, I'm looking through his older stuff and his newer stuff. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I did see him talk, actually, Uh a couple of years ago. And what I liked about him is he was just so natural and wonderful and he's charming isn't he it's very self-effacing no arrogance whatsoever just mean absolutely superb so he is very much top of the list right excellent well that's a very good choice I've got to say that Jeanette was very enthusiastic about um, her choice of books. And whilst I've read a lot of Kazoo Ishiguru, I haven't read A View of the Pale Hills. So, and it sounded lovely. Yes, no, I haven't. 
uh, I will be doing that. Yes, and, uh, Remains of the Day, yes, which is, of course is, is uh, well, I mean, all of his books are well known, but that, that's the one I do, but I haven't read that. Yeah, that, that and Clara of the Sun, obviously, because yes, that's yes. the most recent one. Yes. But, but yeah, that's really interesting. I'll definitely, definitely go back. Anyway, we've asked, Jeanette had loads more to say. So we've actually, she's got some other suggestions um, or recommendations for great mm-hmm. books, her favourite books, and we'll be uh, covering those next week. Yeah, great. And, and literally, um, like to say to to our listeners if if something that um Jeanette's mentioned uh, sparks your interest do drop drop, drop us a line uh, uh, you know julian at river.radio or heather at river.radio absolutely well um this week heather i've uh, put together something of a melange for our listeners um, for you and i to share and we you and i are going to serve our listeners Four delicious cocktails accompanied by four canapes of books. Excellent. Now, to explain a little bit more, um, the four novels, uh, um, we're going to talk about four novels indelibly linked to cocktails. And these are the the ones I've selected. You're a bit of a cocktail fiend, aren't you? I am a little bit, yes. I I must admit, I do enjoy cocktails. And just a little tip um, for our listeners, or as I like to say, our listener, dash off. If you're interested in the recipes, do get a piece of paper and a pencil because there are recipes you can jot down. I know probably for some of you, 11.20 is a little bit early, uh, but bear in mind that we finish at 12, which is right time for a lunchtime cocktail i think so you, get your pen and paste absolutely and you can always listen again <laughs> indeed um, you can yes in the evening with your cocktails absolutely <laughs> um and so to set us off on our chic cocktail tour we start with casino royale which we have featured before on this program absolutely casino royale was the first novel <laughs> published by ian fleming of course uh in 1953 that introduces to the world of uh, introduced to the world uh, the secret agent James Bond and of course it also introduced us to James Bond's famous favourite cocktail the Vesper Martini. Now as you may recall James is in the casino and Royale Les Yeux attempting to bankrupt Le Chiffre who's the treasurer of the French Union as well as being topically a member of the Russian Secret Service. Yes indeed. Now the Vesper Martini is possibly the most famous cocktail uh, to be ordered out of all orders for cocktails because it its composition is described by Bond in such a precise manner and it is as follows. Three measures of Gordon's gin, one of vodka, half a measure of Kinalillette, shake it very well until it's ice cold, then add a large thin slice of lemon peel. Now, in that one short statement, Heather, the myth surrounding how James Bond liked his martinis cleared up. As you know, people said, oh, you know, he, he liked them sturdy, he liked them shaking. Was it gin? Was it vodka? No, his martinis were predominantly made of gin, um, not vodka, though there's a bit of vodka in the Vespa, and he always had it shaken, not stirred. And as to the name Vespa, well, James Bond named it after Vespa Lind, who was a member of the Secret Service team assisting him on that particular case. Now, if you wish to make a replica of the Vespa Martini, Kina, uh, Kina Liette is no longer in production. However, Liette Blanc is, and it makes an ideal substitute. So is uh, Kina Liette still alcohol yes it is basically because because a classic martini as most people know is 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 has has vermouth in it yeah but the 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 Lillette blanc um is 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 the substitute for the vermouth it's, it's a type of vermouth um and it's 
it, 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 it's, it's quite rare. I mean, we, we, it, it's available in a well-known supermarket, but we're not going to name them until they come forward and sponsor us. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can get it. Uh, and that, was the, that is the replacement for the, the standard martini. Right. So or rather, should I say standard vermouth. Right. So it's alcohol, alcohol, alcohol. It is indeed, yes, yes. And later, if we have some time, I'll, I'll tell you how the best way to make a dry martini. Oh, okay, okay. Right, so our next cocktail takes us across the Atlantic to Prohibition America and the Roaring Twenties, where bright young things would dance and drink the nights away in large mansions along Long Island's North Shore. Now, the cocktail is the Mint Julep, and the novel, of course, is The Great Gatsby, written by F. Scott Fitzgerald and set in 1922. Now, out of the cast of characters that are entwined in this story, narrated by Nick Carraway, includes, of course, Jay Gatsby, the enigmatic young self-made millionaire who hosts parties but never attends them. And in one of these parties, we meet Daisy Buchanan, the self-absorbed, shallow, distant cousin of Nick, who, at one of the parties, tries to calm her husband, Tom, down during an argument. And she says to him, I'll make you a mint julep, and then you'll seem less stupid to yourself. (laughs) Indeed. Now, making a mint julep is simple enough. Pardon me. All you need is bourbon, ice, Sprigs of mint, leaves only, two sugar cubes and a little water or simple syrup. Now you put the sugar cubes into a glass with five or six mint leaves and a little bit of water um, and then you muddle them together until the sugar dissolves. If you're using simple syrup then that's a lot easier because you don't need to bother with the sugar uh, cubes. Then you add the bourbon, then fill up with crushed ice and stir until the glass is well frosted and then you garnish with a sprig of mint. Now, the, the, the mint julep was invented in the southern states of America in um, around 1770. And the julep, or the name julep, signified a sweet type of drink. Uh, and there's a specific vessel um, which you can serve it in called the julep cup. So what and, does that look like? Um, it, 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 it's actually sort of a, 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 it's a tall um, glass. Um, I suppose uh, the nearest thing you you, you might in, in your mind you've not seen one. Sometimes you 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 find coffee served in them with a little handle on the side. Oh but yes, I, but yes. I, I don't think it has the handle on the side. Yeah, it, it may. But is that yes, that style that of style, glass? Yeah. <clears throat> And, um, and and yes, and it's called the Juliet Cup. And, and, and another one which is reintroducing James Bond, because if you if you cast your mind back to um, Goldfinger, the mint julep um, makes an appearance when Oric Goldfinger is serves one to James Bond at his Kentucky stud, asking James if it's not too tart for him. Wow. Yeah. Now, we're going to remain in America, um, but moving along from Long Island into the city of New York, which... I, I, one might argue, is the home of the cocktail as we know it, having first been defined as an alcoholic beverage in a New York publication in 1806. Wow, so long ago. Yes, exactly. Now, cocktails evolved and came, uh, gained popularity throughout the 1900s with the term cocktail party, interestingly enough, being, um, <clears throat> pardon me, coined by Mrs. Julius S. Walsh Jr. of St. Louis, Missouri in 1917. 
Now, the cocktail's heyday was probably during the 1920s, but continued to be fashionable well into the 1950s, with the Madison Avenue admin famously having their two martini lunches. And to add to the sophistication of the drink, don't forget the most sophisticated of sophisticates, Cary Grant, drank a Gibson um, before dinner on the 20th Century Limited as he flees New York in the film North by Northwest. Oh, and he always looked so glamorous. Oh, yeah, very glamorous. And what is a Gibson, you may ask? Well, it is a dry martini garnished with either one or three, but never two, pearl onions. And it's my favourite martini. Ah, so why never two? I don't know. I think it's one of that piece of rubbish, you know, cocktail um, rubbish where martini, you can have one or three, but not two. I mean... <laughs> Although they say when you're planting uh, bulbs in the garden or plants that you should always do it in odd numbers. Oh, right. So you should never okay. plant two of something. You should always plant one or three or five. And it's very similar when you're at a Chinese restaurant. There are five of you and they serve uh, they serve um, four or seven bits of something. <laughs> and that's, um, yes, yeah, so that's the myth. It's one or, t- one or three, but not two, which is yes, quite funny. that's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the Gibson. Right. So into the glamorous world of New York, of course, and and cocktails steps Holly go lightly, and the bar she used to frequent makes a white angel in the opening pages of um, of Breakfast at Tiffany's, written by Truman Capote and published in 1958. Yeah, I mean, the story is a short and a simple one. Holly Golightly is a country girl, and she's aged between 18 and 90, who's arrived in New York in the hope of snagging a rich husband. Now, Holly has no job, but she survives as what's known as a cafe society girl, which is um, socialising with wealthy men who take her to clubs and restaurants, um, and they buy her expensive presents and give her money. Um, And uh, an American geisha, as Capote described her. Now, to see Holly vividly um, brought to life um, is then you must watch Audrey Hepburn portraying Holly Golightly um, in the 1960s film version of Breakfast at Tiffany's. And just to let you know, because I made this mistake when I first went to New York and visited Tiffany's, there is no restaurant or cafe at Tiffany's. I do think they're missing an opportunity I there, think, don't I think, you? I think, they, I think they are. If they had a breakfast bar, it would know, be full fantastic. every day. Absolutely. And, and, the, and, 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 and so the reason is people say, well, you know, why breakfast at Tiffany's? Well, Holly liked to walk through the city in the early summer mornings and she would stand outside Tiffany's um, uh, looking at the jewellery display while she was eating her breakfast croissant. Now, the White Angel, if you like to make one yourself uh, and be part of Holly's world, is one half vodka, one half gin, no vermouth. And it packs a punch. And in fact, it's just another type of dry martini um, minus the vermouth uh, and perhaps the driest of all. Um, So let's hear the beginning of the book where we're introduced um, to Holly's favourite cocktail. Yes, you say you... uh just need to watch um, Audrey Hepburn to give you an idea of uh, Holly uh, vividly coming to life. But actually, the book is fabulous. It is. Yeah, it it's is. Re- yeah. It's really good. Let's listen to it now. I'm always drawn back to places where I've lived, the houses and their neighbourhoods. For instance, there's a brownstone in the East 70s where, during the early years of the war, I had my first New York apartment. It was one room crowded with attic furniture, 
a sofa and fat chairs upholstered in that itchy, particular red velvet that one associates with hot days on a train. Everywhere, in the bathroom too, there were prints of Roman ruins, freckled brown with age. The single window looked out on a fire escape. Even so, my spirits heightened whenever I felt in my pocket the key to this apartment. With all its gloom, it still was a place of my own. The first, and my books were there, and jars of pencils to sharpen everything I needed, so I felt, to become the writer I wanted to be. It never occurred to me in those days to write about Holly Golightly, and probably it would not now, except for a conversation I had with Joe Bell. Holly Golightly had been a tenant in the old brownstone. As for Joe Bell, he ran a bar round the corner on Lexington Avenue. He still does. Both Holly and I used to go there six, seven times a day. Not for a drink, not always, but to make telephone calls. Joe Bell was good about taking messages, which in Holly's case was no small favour. Of course, this was a long time ago, and until last week, I hadn't seen Joe Bell in several years. Often we'd never been strong friends, except in as much as we were both friends of Holly Golightly. Anyone who knows him will tell you he's a hard man to talk to. Impossible if you don't share his fixations, of which Holly is one. And so when late last Tuesday afternoon the telephone rang and I heard, Joe Bell here, I knew it must be about Holly. He didn't say so, just, can you rattle over here? It's important. And there was a croak of excitement in his froggy voice. I took a taxi in a downpour of October rain, and on my way I even thought she might be there, that I would see Holly again. But there's no one on the premises except the proprietor. Joe Bell's a quiet place compared to most Lexington Avenue bars. It boasts neither neon nor television. Naturally, he said, I wouldn't have got you over here if it wasn't I wanted your opinion. It's peculiar. A very peculiar thing has happened. You heard from Holly? His complexion seems permanently sunburned. Now it grew even redder. I can't say exactly heard from her. I mean, I don't know. That's why I want your opinion. Let me build you a drink, something new. They call it a white angel, he said, mixing one half vodka, one half gin, no vermouth. While I drank the result, Joe Bell stood turning over in his mind what he had to tell me. You recall a certain Mr. Iwai Yunioshi, a gentleman from Japan? From California, I said, recalling Mr. Yunioshi perfectly. He's a photographer in one of the picture magazines. Don't bugger mixing me up. All I'm asking, you know who I mean. Okay, so last night, who comes waltzing in here but this self-same Mr. I.Y. Yunioshi? I haven't seen him, I guess, it's over two years. And where do you think he's been these two years? Africa. His eyes narrowed. So how did you know? Read it in Winchell which I had as a matter of fact. He rang open his cash register and produced a manila envelope. Well, did you read this in Winchell? In the envelope were three photographs, more or less the same, though taken from different angles. A tall, delicate black man, wearing a calico skirt and with a shy yet vain smile, displaying in his hands an odd wood sculpture, an elongated carving of a head, a girl's, 
her hair sleek and short as a young man's, her smooth wood eyes too large and tilted in the tapering face, her mouth wide, overdrawn, not unlike clown lips. On a glance, it resembled most primitive carving. And then it didn't. For here was the spit image of Holly Golightly, at least as much of a likeness as a dog still think could be. So, um, that's Holly Golightly's favourite bar and the white, uh, the white Angel. Yes, indeed. And that's probably the driest... Um, well, I would imagine so, really, basically. I mean, it depends on the, a, a dry martini would have... Uh, I mean, a really dry martini has practically no vermouth, and this one has no vermouth at all, so it's just vodka and, mart- uh, and gin. <laughs> yes, you can't get much drier than you that. Can't, no, <laughs> unless it's an empty glass. <laughs> so no tribute to drinks and writers would be complete without including the drinker of all drinkers, Ernest Hemingway. So enthusiastic was Ernest Hemingway about his devotion to bars that anyone could open a bar anywhere in the world and claim Hemingway had drunk in it and probably would be half right, if not entirely right. That's a bit unfair, isn't it? <laughs> well, it is amazing. You know, when we go around, particularly in the States or anywhere in, in Cuba, and say, oh, yeah, but Hemingway drank here, drank in Venice, drank in Paris, drank everywhere. You probably find he drank at Luton Airport as well. There's an advert for one. <laughs> so the cocktails don't feature predominantly in The Sun Also Rises, published in 1926 by Ernest Hemingway, but drunks do. Mm. The parade of characters is either almost always drunk or setting up on the road to be thoroughly drunk and in pursuit of, of oblivion are quite liberal in what they drink, showing no discrimination whatsoever. Now, obviously, we don't condone excessive drinking. But in this book, everything from beer to wine to grapper to absinthe to brandy all gets guzzled by Jake Barnes and his chums, concluding that no matter how vulgar the hotel is, the bar is always nice. I think that's a nice little sort of a little saying for a true drinker that really <laughs> it doesn't matter. And probably the bar's pretty gropey too. But, you know, as long as it's well stocked, that's the main thing. However, amongst what sounds to be quite a hair-raising description of drinking. Some sophistication does make an appearance in the book, uh, whilst Barnes is waiting to meet the attractive lady, Brett Ashley, and they're in Paris at the moment uh, before they're travelling or going on to travel further. And he orders a Jack Rose whilst he's waiting. Now, the Jack Rose is a classic cocktail of the 1920s, and it's made with Applejack brandy, grenadine and lime juice and it's served in a coupe glass and it rises like the sun with its warm red hue now to make a a jack rose you will need one and a half ounces of apple jack or apple brandy three quarters ounce of freshly squeezed lime or lemon juice half an ounce of grenadine and ice now you pop all the ingredients into a cocktail shaker and give it a vigorous shake and then you pour it into coupe glasses or another word for the coupe glasses is the martini glass and garnish with a twist of lemon I've got to say, a martini glass is always very glamorous. They are very it? glamorous. And they're, they're the ones that sort of, sort of drop it. Oh, yes, I'll have one of those. It looks really good. Yes. <laughs> so you understand you have a, a Jack Rose to make other people more interesting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a bit mean. <laughs> 
So um, other books that uh, feature cocktails, there seems to be quite a number of them, is A Cat on the Hot Tin Roof by right. Tennessee Williams. Williams. Yes. And you've got the uh, the melancholic Brick Pololit uh, is never without a drink and she's constantly refilling his glass in search of the click I can get in my head when I've had enough of this stuff to make me peaceful. Ah. Which is not a good reason to drink, is Probably it? Probably not, no. No. Um, and it was a hot toddy that I think that uh, they uh, is the is the famous drink in Cat on the Hot Tin, tin Roof. So what's a hot toddy? Well, the hot toddy, as far as I understand, it's it, it's um, and it could be an adaptation in, in in America. Normally, a hot toddy would be um, um, a whiskey and maybe some honey with it and hot water, in which you could uh, you could take as as a cold. But perhaps if it was uh, uh, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which is I think based in the Southern States, isn't it? It probably would have contained bourbon, but it certainly would would. Have have hot water in it now whether you would then put some other other herbs and spices in it um possibly maybe a little bit of honey to sweeten it yes uh, mm. now you're making me think of christmas now yes and of course a christmas carol features a, a smoking bishop good heavens yes of yes course. so you've got um, ebenezer scrooge and he's promising to help bob cratchit and his struggling family and he insists that they discuss affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of Smoking Bishop. And uh, Smoking Bishop was a, was a popular drink in Victorian England, and it was made with port, mm-hmm. red wine, fruit and spices. Right. So very much like a mulled wine, it, which yes. sort of a hot toddy was reminding it, it, me of yes, that. Yes, yes. So it would be there. And, you know, the, the other sort of hot toddies that you get, if you're keen skiers and, and um, ski in Austria, um, is, of course, Glühwein, and, um, which, is a, which is a popular drink uh, post-skiing. Um, and again, similar similar thing a spiced hot drink with some alcohol in it yes yes which also sort of helps when you're cold well exactly and again a mulled wine a similar sort of thing that obviously with uh, uh, wines and spices Mm. and traditionally of course that was mulled by just shoving a hot poker into it ah Yes, okay. yes. You didn't bother with the hot water. You shoved a hot poker yeah. in it to, to bring up the temperature. And you've you've forgotten, of course, talking about things that help you with coughs and colds. The pangalactic gargle blast. Yes. <laughs> Way to Douglas Adams for inventing that one. <laughs> Absolutely. And the refrain goes, of course, never drink more than two pangalactic gargle blasters unless you're a 30-ton mega elephant with bronchial pneumonia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the advice given by Bilbo Brooks in uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I think probably very sound advice. I think so. <laughs> so I'm not sure we can make that today. No, I don't. I think that's probably, I think the ingredients are probably a little rare. Absolutely, yes. The ingredients are, she says, looking at this, uh, the tooth of an Algolian sun tiger, some phalian marsh gas, some Arcturian megagin, and one measure of Santa Regenia seawater. I think you're probably going to have to find a specialist retailer yeah. for those. Oh, mm. I forgot an olive. Oh, <laughs> ah, yes. Most important. Just the, just the single one. Yes. Never two. Never two. <laughs> So all the books mentioned are all currently available to buy and to enjoy. So we've got Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote, The uh, Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. They're all published by Penguin Classics in paperback. Uh, Casino Royale 
by Ian Fleming, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by uh, Douglas Adams, and A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof by Tennessee Williams, yes. and A Christmas Carol, of course. Yes, of course. By yes, Charles indeed. Dickens, yes. Now, before we say goodbye to the cocktail party, I have a couple of quotations for you. Now, the first comes from Never Say Never Again, where we join James Bond at a waterside bar, and he's watching a very stylish and energetic young lady, Fatima Blush, water skiing, and she seemingly misjudges her landing at the dock, and she she flies into James Bond saying breathlessly, Oh, how reckless of me. I made you all wet. And James replies, Yes, but my martini is dry. <laughs> and my favourite of all cocktail bombos is courtesy of that fantastic American wit, Dorothy Parker, who said, I like to have a martini. Two at the very most. After three, I'm under the table. After four, I'm under the host. <laughs> she was a wit, wasn't she? Was. She was. <laughs> right. Now, obviously, it is a little bit early for cocktails, but it's not too early to talk about the little bookshop in Cookham, who is having a lit fest in um, April the 9th. Um, so the little bookshop in Cookham is a regular on the programme. And I was chatting with uh, the manager, Chantal, earlier this morning about the new event they are organising Let's listen to what she has to say. Chantal, thank you for joining us. Now, you have got the Little Bookshop Cookham first literary festival coming up, haven't you? We have indeed. So tell me about it. When is it and who is there? It is at Norton Farm on Saturday the 9th of April and it starts at two o'clock and it will go on for a couple of hours. A uh, nice way to spend a Saturday afternoon. We have got four guest authors coming to talk. We have, who uh, has been published for over 20 years, and there's a wonderful writer. She'll be discussing her latest book, Little Wing, which is quite different to what she normally writes. I think some, some of her followers will be very surprised. It's a, it's a lovely novel. And we have Janice Hallett, who will be talking about her book, The Twyford Code. She was shortlisted for prizes for The Appeal, which is her last book. Um, she writes crime novels, very clever, but a brilliant take on, on how she does it. So we'll have- Code's been very popular, hasn't it? Yes, it's been a Sunday Times bestseller and yes, on all the lists. It's yeah. been it's been a bit long for us actually. And then we've got Beth Murray coming to talk about her latest book, which is M and Me, which is a lovely, heartwarming, um, uplifting story. It's her second one. She's quite a well known journalist. And we have uh, Kieran, who is normally a poet, really, and uh, this is his debut novel and it's uh, really quite remarkable it's called Hourglass I love love poets when they write novels because the language is just so descriptive and poetic yes (laughs) yes there's lots of poetic license but and I've seen and more talk before and they can come do a a little chat so there can be a QA and a session and they'll be followed by a book signing that sounds great so you buy one ticket for all four authors do you that's right. And uh, there will be £2 off each book sold at the signing. Fantastic. That sounds a really good idea. And Norden Farm's great. Yes, it's a fantastic arts venue. Uh, we're so lucky to have it on our doorstep. And I know that they were having their uh, funding cut and it's, it's still in jeopardy. I think they've got it for this year. But uh, I just thought, well, what can we do to support such a place and just keep it going? And so the Mini Lit Fest was born. 
Oh, that's a fantastic idea. Now, normally you do uh, you do invite authors into the bookshop. So do you think you're going to do less of that and more of getting authors together in a literary festival time? Well, we did it before COVID with having authors in the bookshop. And I think nowadays with everyone being a little bit more cautious, our concern was that the little bookshop is quite little and you don't want to be packing big crowds of people in as we have done in the past, just because some people are still vulnerable and we're just trying to be considerate to everybody's needs. So we thought we could have more than one author and hopefully if it's a success, then we'll repeat it again in the autumn because obviously there's a big publication date autumn time with um, yes. Christmas on the horizon then so yeah so that oh that sounds a great plan and I've got to say those four authors are, are really good and are they going to connect together are they going to chat amongst themselves as well I'm sure there'll be loads of that <laughs> I'd have to be chairing it because we only have a couple of hours and I uh, how some of them like to talk <laughs> but uh, I'm sure there'll be a Q&A session and they're such wonderful writers and they're all such lovely people and I always find that in the writing community there's, there's no there's no nastiness they're not in competition with each other they all just want to really help other writers because they're all readers you know so <laughs> they want they want good books to read too so it's a really incredibly supportive industry and everyone just wants to help each other so there'll be lots of advice and i know that they all do lots in their own way for the writing community freya north for instance has writers wednesday so on instagram she does a live every wednesday afternoon with another well-known author to discuss the difference in their writing styles or the, their different experiences of the publishing industry and i know that they all do lots to help the community so i'm sure there'll be lots of chat about that as well. I think that one of the nicest things about having four different authors is that you might be a big fan of one author in particular but not necessarily know the others so it's a great way of being introduced into new authors new ideas. Absolutely. We're always on the lookout for the next big thing. If you're a reader and you read a lot, you quickly run out of books. <laughs> so you need to keep finding the, the new ones, the debut writers. That's- that sounds brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed. Really hope it's a successful um, successful event. I'm sure it will be. I've got to say, it does sound a great event. It does. And just nice, just two hours of an afternoon. Doesn't take up masses of your time, no. but you've got four authors. Exactly. I mean, this is it. So, so that, yeah, that's great. It's, it really is, as you said, just a nice little um a little lunchtime well post-lunch time um literary dessert yes perfect now the event is on saturday the 9th of april at 2 p.m and it's taking place at norden farm don't forget now the authors um who will be talking uh, at the event will be freya north janice hallett Beth Mori and Kieran Goddard. Now, tickets can be bought either from Norton Farm in Maidenhead at their website or the Little Bookshop uh, Cookham website, which is, if you've got your pen and paper, thelittlebookshop.info. Yeah, that's brilliant and well, well worth it. Yes. And talking about festivals, we don't just have that mini lit fest in April to look forward to because the wonderful Cookham Festival is back and they have just announced their events. Now, the festival is normally runs every two years and it should have been last year. The right. course was cancelled mm-hmm. because of circumstances and as Chantal was saying not everyone uh, is keen to sort of 
get back to normal life. But normal life is slowly resuming. Yes. And I think an indication of that is all these festivals that we can mm. go to. And I know that the Cooking Festival is allowing lots of room um, in the various talks and events and lots of the events are outside mm-hmm. as well. So they have been cognizant of, of that. But basically the festival is a celebration of the arts in the village of Cookham, which is close to Maidenhead. And tickets are available and they are running out quickly. I say that. Um, the annou- the dates were announced and then phew, about 600 tickets were immediately bought. So that's Fantastic. really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, it, there's a whole range of events from the spoken word to poetry, music, dance, visual arts, walks, workshops, just amazing things, all at different price points. And lots of events designed specifically for children. So it doesn't matter what you're interested in, there will be something guaranteed that will pique your your interest. And the festival runs between May the 6th and May the 22nd, with lots happening every single day. Indeed. And the spoken word and poetry section of the festival is something that we're going to be talking about um, on Turned Pages um, and focusing over the course of the next few weeks, yes, isn't absolutely, it, Heather? absolutely, yeah. Um, and as you can imagine, um, we'll, be, we'll be chatting with a number of authors and participants at the festival. Yes. Uh, and there's um, uh, 15 book events and a few of the highlights of the festival include, and I think this will be of great interest to people, Sir Michael Parkinson, who's going to be in conversation with his son, discussing his journey, that's uh, Sir Michael's journey from humble roots um, uh, in a pit village in Yorkshire to the through his career as a journalist at the Yorkshire Post and getting through up to those famous dares on his television programme and, of course, reliving all the best moments from his shows. Do you think he'll be talking about the one with Rod Hull and the emu? Oh, oh, I don't know. I bet 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 he wants to forget that. But I have to tell you very quickly, my favourite one, and I don't know to this day how they did it, when uh, Michael Parkinson, Sir Michael, was interviewing Dame Edna Everidge and Sir Les Patterson. Oh, at the same time? Not at the same time, on the same <laughs> show. And they had Celez Patterson first. <laughs> then the f- camera would pan out to, um, uh, oh, uh, Barry Humphreys, yeah. dressed as himself, cringing at the thought of this was the cultural attaché <laughs> to the quarters of James. And then after the second guest was Dame Edna, well, you could imagine her comments about Celeste. It was a superb programme. So uh, I, I hope he talks about that. Yes. And of course, needless to say, there is a book associated with this. So He's Fantastic. written a sort of like memoir. Super. Um, and um, I think he did that with his son. So that would be really be lovely. good. Lovely. Yeah. And this year, of course, it's 100 years of broadcasting at the BBC. Wow. So they're celebrating their centenary, which is amazing. Gosh, if I'd have known, I'd have put on my dinner suit as Lord Reith dictated all those years ago to, a, to be on this programme today. Well, I yes. Alex be expecting that next week. No, I, right. So Kate Murphy, historian and senior producer of Women's Hour, will be looking back over those years of uh, broadcasting and looking at the role of women. 
Uh, which would be really interesting. Really interesting, yeah. yes. Uh, because, in fact, women did did feature early on, particularly in television, didn't they? Very you know? much yes. so. Yeah, which yeah, really absolutely. Good. Yeah, yeah lots of senior producers. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, author uh, Judy Summers will be providing a behind-the-scenes glimpse of life in some of great uh, Britain's greatest country houses that were occupied by people who would otherwise never have set foot of them during the, uh, these opulent surroundings um, during the uh, Second World War because a lot of these great houses were taken over for military purposes, weren't they, during they the war? They were, but also orphanages and things yes, like that. Yes, so yes. lots of children yes. were. So I think that's been really interesting. Yeah. And of course, round here, we've got loads, loads of loads, big country yes. houses. So, And I know that she'll be targeting mm. the talk specifically yeah. to round here. So that would be really interesting. But in fact, actually, the, the, um, the Duke of Westminster <laughs> actually sort of... Um, pointed the finger of blame at the American servicemen who occupied Eaton Hall for, for its demolition because they knocked great chunks of marble off oh, staircase yes. to take a souvenir and then the, and the Death Wasp Beetle got in. But anyway. Oh no! <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> and then Julie Summers is also running a creative writing workshop at the festival. So if you've ever wanted to try your hand at writing then this is your chance. So it's two uh, two hours on a Sunday afternoon um, on July the, uh, sorry, May the 13th. And um, Julie will be doing a creative writing workshop. So I think that sounds great fun. That, that, that does sound fun. And, and that, honestly, Heather, that's just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? And we'll be interviewing um, a number of authors who'll be speaking at the festival in May. And next week we've asked Mike Bryan, uh, one of the authors um, who will be talking at the festival, to join us to discuss his latest book which is exploring the remains of roman britain now tickets may be bought from the website which is cookhamfestival.co.uk and you'll also be able to find out all the details about the program over those two weeks yeah i've got i've got to say it's a fabulous program yeah it sounds it and um you are invited to come along in lots of different guises so there's not just sort of sitting and listening to people Mm -hmm. you can get involved with workshops you can go on walks so Cookham is famous of course for Stanley Spencer the artist yes so we have his grandson Stanley Spencer's grandson is doing a walk around Cookham Village excellent Um, and I know the local art club has done paintings of the whole high street. Um, so they've wow. recorded the high street. Oh, so right. that's a, there's going to be a display. In Spencer style, probably, because he was, a, yeah. Oh, I think ah, lots of different great. styles. So this it's really interesting yeah. what people... Sorry, when I meant Spencer style, because yeah. that's how he did. He was always he was always drawing things of, 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 of great panoramas. So yes. That's what I meant, rather than the, yes. the style of Spencer. Yes, he did, yeah. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, you can even go and, and do your own drawing because there's something called chalk the walk Ooh. where we actually have uh, a causeway oh, in, uh, running through uh, through Cookham and you can actually do your own artwork there fantastic um, so there's it's lots of interactive things excellent um, so if you go on to the Cookham uh, festival.co.uk website then of course the whole programme yeah. is uh, is there for you all indeed um, so yeah so one event has already sold out super that is great news so so get on that website and book those tickets. Yeah, absolutely. And um, avoid disappointment. And looking forward to speaking to Mike Bryan next, next week. Uh, next yes. week. Yes. Yeah. So books that we've been recommending today. 
So we've got, um, sorry. Yeah, well, yes, indeed. Well, the, the Pearls of Childhood by Vera Gissing, published by Robson Books, and her other book, which is Nicholas Winton and the Rescue Generation, which was published by Valentine Mitchell and Company. Yes, and you were talking about a private spy. Yes. The Letters of John le Carré. Um uh, published in Viking in November. And then we've got um, Colm Toybin's The Magician, published by Penguin. Kazoo Ishiguru, The Remains of the Day, Pale View of Hills, and An Artist of the Floating World. And they've all been published by Faber and Faber. Janice Hallett, The Twyford Code, published by Ves- uh, Viper, I beg your pardon. Uh, Freya North, Little Wing, published by Welbeck. Uh, and then Beth Morley, uh, sorry, Beth Morrie, um, her book M and Me, published by HarperCollins. And Kira Goddard, which is Hourglass, published by Little Brown. And those last four, of course, are all involved in uh, the Cookham Little, the Little Bookshop in Cookham Literary Festival, which is on the 9th of April. Yes. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11 and 12 noon on, Ra- on River Radio. And we'll also be repeated on Saturday yes. um, afternoon between 2 and 3. And don't forget, if you're not able to join us live for any of our programmes, you can listen again directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also a available as a podcast so you just need to search for turning pages on river radio podcast and next week we've got a great show lined up for for, for you we've got the author mike bryan talking about his uh his book roman britain and he'll be doing that at the cook and festival and we'll also be talking to derek bond the chairman of the festival so we look forward to you joining us next week bye-bye bye-bye windsor windsor ascot ascot